The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I know we've already prayed a couple times, but it is church, so let's pray one more time. Ask the Lord to Bless the preaching of his word. God, thank you uh, once again to get to be with your people. Lord, what a gift, what a, what a joy, what an honor, God, to get to open up your word. Lord, how, how much we take it for granted that you have spoken. Lord, how quick I am to not run to your counsel, to not run to your guidance, to not run to your wisdom or your rule. Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. And God, so I pray as we take a few minutes and we think about you and we think about your scriptures and we think about your word, Lord, would you help us be molded and shaped by your grace more and more into the image of Christ. That's what we long for. That's what we want. And for the parts of us that don't want that, God, would you help us to want it more? We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be hanging out in just a little bit. If you want to grab a Bible or a phone, it should be in the bulletin as well. Before we get there, believe it or not, we have reached the end of our series, The Emotionally Healthy Church. And all of the emotional suppressors in the room say, Amen. Finally, enough with the feelings. We've been so many places, we've covered so much ground over the past 11 weeks. We started by defining emotional maturity, that too long of definition for anyone to remember. We said emotional maturity is having the right emotion at the right time with the right amount for the right duration because of the right reason, namely love. In other words, our leading argument into the whole series was that it's not about denying your emotions or obeying your emotions. It's not about whether emotions are good or bad. It's all about why you're feeling them and what you do when you feel them. And then we moved from there into what we called the four essential movements of emotional health. If you remember this, we talked about going up, bringing our emotions to God. We talked about going in. Why am I feeling what I am feeling? Talked about going back, right? Looking at our past and our family of origin. We talked about going out, bringing in the gift of community. And then we spent the last five weeks looking at specific emotions, fear, jealousy, anger, shame, and loneliness, and then corresponding to all the sermons, we've done a ton of initiatives. Redemption, for a lot of you folks that have walked through that on Monday nights, we've done some book clubs, we've done Tuesday and Thursday morning prayer, all of these things just to try to help us move the needle a little bit on what it would look like for our church to be a little bit more emotionally mature in Christ. And I pray and I hope and I've been praying that it's been a blessing to you and an encouragement and a help. Tonight, my goal is just to kind of tie a bow on the whole thing. I just kind of want to close the series for us by giving us one final movement necessary for emotional health. And that movement is this, church, we must slow down to go forward. 
We must slow down to go forward. I was in Minnesota uh, for a family funeral this past week, and while I was there, I got the opportunity to visit my grandpa, uh, who's in a, a care facility. A few weeks ago, he fell and he broke his hip, and so he's in recovery for that. And I, I was asking my grandma while I was there, I said, Grandma, how long is he going to be here? Like, how long is this going to take? It, it's been a long time. This is a struggling situation, a lot of suffering for you. She's staying at their home about 10 miles away driving back and forth as often as she can, but he has to stay there by himself. And so I was like, Grandma, when's he going to get out? Like, when is this going to be fixed? When is he going to be healed? And in a typical Minnesotan Midwestern accent, my grandma looked at me, and she said this, quote, Well, you know how it is, Tim. We don't really know how long it'll be. These things just take time. Now, as I was flying back home from Minnesota and dealing with all the fun of airports as they are right now, I was thinking about this question or this, this thing, this statement that my grandma made where she looked at me and said, hey, we don't know. These things just take time. And I thought, man, what a fitting end to this series on emotional health. As we think about redemption, as we think about the sermons, as we think about the book clubs and the morning prayer, we might be tempted to ask ourselves this question, when am I going to be fixed? When am I going to be healed? When am I going to see actual freedom from these things that I've been wrestling through and struggling with? How long until I'm healed? My encouragement for us tonight, church, would be this. Well, Citizens Church, you know how these things are. No one knows how long it'll be. It's just going to take some time. We must slow down to go forward. Now, here's the problem. If you're wired anything like me with a need for instant and a need for immediacy and a need for quick fixes, that statement sounds like nails on a chalkboard, right? What do you mean time? No, I want everything now. I want my food now. I want to be in my destination now. I want emotional health and maturity now. I want holiness now. I want freedom from my past and deliverance and no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin now. But here's the reality. Discipleship to Jesus, spiritual formation, emotional health is a long, slow process. These things just take time. And the problem is when we don't get this, what tends to happen is we live in a constant state of disillusionment and unrest and frustration. I love the way that, that Bill Hull talks about it. He's kind of the, the guru on all things discipleship, and he, he says it really helpfully. It's kind of a long quote, but stay with me. He says, a very common question to any plan for spiritual formation among church members is, quote, how can we speed this up? The consumer culture in which we live is a world of consumption, assertiveness, speed, and fame. Impatience is the most accepted sin in Western culture. The problem, though, with impatience is that it short-circuits the forming of Christ in persons. With a consumer mentality, there is no basis to enter into a life of submission and humility. People begin to believe that if they can get a handle on this character flaw of uncontrolled anger in the next two months, it will be taken care of. And if it doesn't work, then they need to find a better teacher, church, curriculum, husband, wife, or workplace, because changing my circumstances will change me. I love that. People believe, okay, I have this problem with anger, and I did the Bible study thing, I went to redemption, I did this thing, and I'm not fixed. What's the problem? Obviously, the problem is the system. Obviously, the problem is the program. And I don't know about you, but maybe you find yourself in this spot. 
right? Maybe you have started a new Bible reading plan or a prayer plan over the past few weeks or a few months, and now it's like, this just feels kind of dull and stale, and I'm not really getting anything out of it. Maybe I just need to try something new. Maybe you signed up for redemption and you went all seven weeks and you had this particular issue, this particular pain point you wanted to work on, and now it's wrapping up and you're like, I don't feel different at all. Maybe the problem was the program. Maybe they should have changed some stuff. Maybe they should have taught something differently. Maybe you've been in a community group for two years, the life of our church, and you're like, I still struggle with the same stuff. It doesn't feel like I'm growing in deep relationships with the people around me. I just kind of feel stuck. Maybe the problem is these folks I'm in group with. Or maybe you came to Jesus, you put your faith in him 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, and you're thinking, okay, when I came to Jesus, I thought I'd never be anxious and I'd never be depressed. After all, his peace passes understanding. And now you're trying to follow Jesus and you're like, man, I feel more stressed out than ever. I feel more sad and alone than ever. Maybe this whole Jesus thing isn't actually true. And if only, man, my job would be so easy if it worked as fast as we wanted it to work. (laughs) If I could preach one sermon or one sermon series, if I could have one counseling session or one coffee, if I personally could sit down with the Bible one time and be fixed of all my problems, I would be out of a job really fast. (laughs) But that's not reality. That's not how it works. That's not how discipleship to Jesus goes. And the problem is our insistence or belief that it does or should happen that quickly is actually a barrier to us being formed into the image of Christ. Because it's a long, slow process. Everything mature in the world takes time. The good news for us is that this is the invitation of the scripture. So turn over with me now to Titus chapter 2 to kind of give you some context. This is uh, considered one of the pastoral epistles or letters. The apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor named Titus, helping him think through some things in ministry, how to raise up elders, how to teach God's word, how to shepherd and lead the church. And at the beginning of Titus chapter 2, he's laid out for him specific commands to give to specific people in the church. So he says, teach the older men this, the older women this, the younger men men this, the younger women this, basically laying out a path of holiness and spiritual and emotional formation for the people in this church. And then he gets to verse 11, and that's where I want to hang out this evening. This is what he writes in Titus 2, verse 11, to this young pastor trying to pastor this church. He writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So notice this, right after the beginning of chapter 2, where he's spelling out all of these commands to different groups in the church, he pauses and says, I need you to remember the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is the essence of the gospel, right? God's grace appeared in flesh. Jesus, God's son, fully God, became fully man. He entered into humanity while we, all of us, were sinners and rebellious and crooked in our very nature. Christ came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he went to a horrific death on an ancient torture device known as a cross. And Paul says the grace of God has appeared. Why? Bringing salvation for all people. That all who would believe in Christ Jesus because of and through the grace of God would be saved, would have salvation from their sins, from the wrath of God, that our sin created a debt with God that we could not pay. We were separated from him, dead in our sins, his enemy, and Jesus entered into the world to bring salvation, to bring forgiveness 
to make us right with God. The biblical term for this that I think is important for you to know is the word justification, that we are justified in Christ. And here's what it means. It means through faith in Jesus, God takes our sin and gives us Christ's righteousness. Church, that is the essence of the gospel. That is the most beautiful message and news and truth you can believe, that in Christ, through faith in him, he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. You, in faith in Christ, are now and forever positionally right with God by faith. You are justified in an instant completely as a work of God and a work of God alone by his grace. Y'all are too sleepy tonight. Let me say that again. Because of nothing you have done at all, nothing, the only thing, as we read this, this evening, right? As we read earlier in the gathering, the only thing we brought to the justification salvation equation was our sin that made it necessary. And yet the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people in an instant for those who believe. They're justified. You are made right with God. But then notice, Paul says this grace of God also does something else. Not only does it make us positionally righteous, but then look at what it does. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So he says the grace of God appeared. It makes us justified in an instant. We are forgiven, declared right with God, but also that same grace of God trains us. It instructs us. It teaches us. It shows us. Shows us what? He tells us. It trains us to first renounce, to say no, to put aside and put away worldly passions and desires. There were things we wanted before we followed Jesus, before we went after him, before he saved us, that Paul says, put those things away, renounce them, say no to them. But then he also says, it doesn't just teach us to renounce, it also teaches us to live. Well, to live what? First, self-controlled. The word there can be translated as sober, grounded in reality. If you've been around for the last 11 weeks, one of the things we've been continually trying to move our church towards is just living in reality. So much of what it means to be emotionally mature is just saying, this is what's real. This is life. And he says, the grace of God trains us to live self-controlled, but not only self-controlled, upright, righteous, a life set apart for God, that we would look different than our neighbor in how we spend our money and how we spend our time and how we interact in relationship, that everything would be different, that we would be set apart, but not only upright, also godly, a life in the direction of Jesus, a life that looks more and more like Christ. This is what Paul is trying to get across to this young pastor named Titus and to us in verses 11 and 12. God's grace has appeared, and so we're justified, we're declared right with God, and now we are being sanctified. And here's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the process by which, by the grace of God, we say no to sin and yes to God more and more. So Paul says to Titus, hey, the grace of God appeared and it's declared you right with God through faith. But now that same grace is causing you more and more in your lived experience to say no to sin and yes to God. Here's how I would say it. We are justified in an instant and we are sanctified over a lifetime. Then more and more as the people of God, we learn to look more and more like Jesus. Now, at this point, you might be on board with this reality. 
You might say, okay, I'm tracking with you. Yes, I want to look more like Jesus. I get that it's a lifelong thing. I get that it's a part of what the grace of God does, trains me to say no to sin, yes to God. But here's the deal. When we often think about this, we think it should look something like this. I drew that myself, if you can't tell. (laughs) It's church plant life, guys. That's what we think it should look like, right? Always up and to the right. Always in this kind of trajectory where, okay, I was justified, declared right, and now I just get more and more and more and more holy upwards and to the right always. But in reality, the lived experience is not like this. It's actually much more like this. I drew that too. (laughs) Two steps forward, two and a half steps back, three steps forward, one step back. Or if we're really being honest, maybe your sanctification is like me and it actually looks like this. That's the reality of life with Christ, is it not? Sure, there's an upward to the right trajectory. Sure, in five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, I hope that I look more like Jesus than I do now by the grace of God, but it's this spiral here, there, and everywhere all over the place journey with Christ. I think there's no better example of this in the scriptures than the life of Peter. I think if I took a straw poll and I'd be like, do you wanna be in love with Jesus like Peter was? Most of us would be like, that sounds awesome. He was one of the 12 he was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, one of the ones that, that, that Christ brought in closest. We'd all agree, Peter's pretty godly. But think about his life, right? Think about his path of sanctification, right? So in Matthew chapter four, he's invited into life with Jesus. Jesus says, hey, drop your nets, come and follow me. So things are going, okay, this is pretty good. Like I'm invited into discipleship with Christ. And then in Matthew 14, he tries to walk on water. He's like, Jesus is walking on water. I can walk on water too. So it's like, this is good faith. And then he takes his eyes off him and starts to drown. Not going as well. And then a few chapters later in Matthew 16, uh, he gets rebuked by Jesus. Jesus actually calls him Satan. Sanctification really not going well at that point. And a few chapters after that, actually later in Matthew 16, a few verses later, he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God. And Jesus says, you're correct. And on that statement of faith, I'm going to build my church. And then he keeps going kind of on this upward trajectory at the last supper. Jesus is like, you're going to deny me. And he's bold. I'm never going to deny you, Jesus. And it's looking like things are going pretty well. And then right away that night, he betrays him and denies him three times. It's like, oh, Peter. And Jesus dies and he rises again and he finds Peter going back to his old profession as a fisherman. He brings him on shore. They eat breakfast and he asks him three times in direct correlation to the three times Peter denied him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He reinstates Peter into ministry, into a life of discipleship. Peter uh, preaches the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, right? The Holy Spirit comes. Peter's the one who gets up, preaches. 5,000 people become Christians like that, which is crazy. And you're like, this is awesome. Peter finally figured it out. And then a few years later, he's getting publicly rebuked by Paul for ostracizing the Gentiles and only hanging out with the Jews. And you're like, crap, here we go again. And then church history says that Peter was crucified for preaching the gospel, and he so did not want to identify with Jesus because he thought Jesus was so honorable, and he didn't even want to die the same death because he said, I'm not worthy to die the same way as my Savior. And so when they wanted to crucify him, he asked asked to be crucified upside down because he had such respect and love for Jesus. That is the walk of sanctification. That is the path of the Christian life. Eight steps forward, 100 steps back, 15 steps forward. You can do whatever math you want to do, but this is what it is. This is what following Jesus is like. It's way more slow than we like. It's way more uncertain than we like. It's way more all over the place than we like. 
What does this mean for us? What does this mean for ending our Emotionally Healthy Church series? I think it means this. If I could put it in one statement that I've kind of already said, but I think is worth repeating and writing down, and that's this. Emotional maturity, like all parts of our sanctification, is a long game. Emotional maturity, like all parts of our sanctification, is a long game. We need to slow down to go forward because everything that is mature takes time. And this is a lifelong, slow, painful, tedious, monotonous process. And there are times when we go to a Sunday gathering, we go to a retreat, we go to a group time, we have this kind of high religious experience. And it's like, yes, everything's clicking. There are those moments, and I hope those moments are a part of your Christian journey, but so much of the Christian life is just little plodding along in faithfulness to Jesus. So we have to slow down to go forward. We have to be okay with that, not to get frustrated, not to try a new reading plan, not to try a new thing, a new religious program. We just have to continue on with the things we know. So if I can encourage us with just a few things that this requires, what does it look like for us to slow down to go forward? I just want to give you a few We'll hit them quick. A few things that slowing down to go forward requires as we play this long game of sanctification. Number one is patience. Patience. We need patience. Don't let our culture of immediacy make you throw in the towel. Don't bring the consumerism posture into following Jesus. Just be patient. God is working a harvest that's his promise, that those who sow to righteousness will reap righteousness. Now, you've got to make sure you're sowing to righteousness. We'll talk about that in a second. But for those of us who are just gently and, and assuredly and little bit by little bit plodding along, just be patient. The worst thing you can do to a crop is to try to rush it growing. Just stay patient. Patience is necessary. It's training us. God is working little bit by little bit by little bit not just patience that sits on its hands and waits. Second, patience mixed with perseverance. We need perseverance. Here's where that quote we started with from, from Bill Hull is so important as we consider Titus 2. Why? Because we're training. If you've ever trained for something, you know that the power of training is in the repetition. It's in the perseverance. If you set out to run a marathon, if you set out to learn a sport or learn a new skill, you're like, I want to learn how to play an instrument. What's the key to learning how to play? Perseverance. Little bit after little bit after little bit. Practice after practice after practice. You know what you don't do if you want to learn how to play the piano? Fire your piano teacher after one week. You didn't teach me how to play piano yet. Yeah, it takes time. It's at the piano. There's like 55 keys or something. I don't know how many are there. I don't know. Thanks. Right? All the time. Uh, all the time I see this. Uh, I love that people want to learn how to play golf. It's one of my favorite things. Um, and I love going out with people that are new sometimes. Uh, the thing that, that I try to always tell folks, though, if you're new to learning how to play golf and you want to be not good like me, but good enough to at least enjoy it a little bit, is you just got to be patient. You just got to try and be slow and be like, I hit a ball and it went into the woods. And then I tried to hit a ball and I just missed it completely. I want to quit. Don't quit. Patience. Perseverance. And we do the same thing in our Christian life, do we not? Well, I read the Bible like five times and I'm not different. Not more in love with Jesus. Yeah. Be patient. Persevere. Yeah, but I, like, I did redemption, and now I feel like I'm not really that changed seven weeks later. Yeah, it was seven weeks. Be patient. Persevere. Well, I've been trying to follow Jesus for like five years, and I just feel like I'm not getting anywhere on my anxiety and my depression, and I just don't feel like I'm growing. Okay. 
Let's look at some stuff. Are you sowing to righteousness? But ultimately, be patient. Persevere. Keep doing the little things over and over and over again. What are those things? All the things you know. We show up to Sundays, even when it's boring and monotonous, and the sermon goes too long, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. We go to group, even though it's tough, and we show up, and we participate, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again, we do it again. We wake up in the morning and we make the coffee and we sit down dreary-eyed at our chair and we open the scriptures and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. That is the stuff of spiritual formation. If you want to be like Jesus in 30 years, that's the stuff. That's the stuff. I love the way that Dennis Oakham uh, put it. He, he writes it this way. He says, we often want the painless quick fix in our sanctification, like a guilt-free diet that demands no sacrifice or the power bar that will give us the carbs we need for the next half hour's activity. Notice this line. We have become consumers of religion rather than cultivators of a spiritual life. As if we believed the infomercial that promises great abs if we just buy the right piece of equipment for $39.95, we think that the next secret to being a spiritually fit Christian can be had by finding some secret technique or buying the most recent hot-selling inspirational devotional or having another sermon series or doing that or doing this or doing that. We think there's some secret we just haven't figured out yet. But notice what he says. Maturity in the Christian life does not come in these ways. There is no substitute for the unspectacular training and diet that we must engage in if we are going to become mature Christians. There's no substitute. Tim, how do I become mature in Christ? There's no substitute. It's the little stuff over and over and over again. Yeah, but what's like, what's like the book? Like, what's the book I can read? There's little stuff over and over and over again. Yeah, but we need to preach on this. We need to hit this topic. Yeah, we will. And then we'll preach some more, and we'll preach some more, and we'll preach some more over and over and over again. It's just the little things. There is no substitute for the small acts of faithfulness. So we persevere, persevere with patience. And then number three, the thing we need the most is God's grace. We need God's grace. All growth in the Christian life is a work of God's grace. God's grace is not just a past reality that at one point made us Christians and saved us. It is also a present reality that trains us for holy living with God. That's Paul's whole point to Titus. The grace of God appeared, and yes, it brought salvation, but it's also bringing sanctification too. It's also training you to be holy, which is why we have to constantly remember as a church that we never move past the gospel. We never get past the gospel as a church. You never move past or advance past or mature past the grace of God in your life as a Christian. The way that one pastor says it is the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z of the Christian faith. It's the beginning and the end. We are desperate for the power and grace of God for all of life with him. And I love the way Paul says it in Galatians 3, writing to this other church. He says it this way. He says, church, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he says, hey, did you become a Christian because you received God's grace by faith or because you did some stuff? The answer we all know is because we received God's grace by faith. And then notice what he says, verse 3. Are you so foolish? What are you, dumb? That's the NLT, I guess. I don't know. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I love Paul sometimes. Paul's like, you idiots. Come on, Tim, what are you, dumb? 
You really think that even though God saved you totally, completely, 100% by an act of his grace, that you now think you're going to make yourself more like Jesus apart from him? What are you, dumb? And I'm like, yeah, Lord, I am. (laughs) That's why I need you. He says, don't be foolish, church. Don't think that God's grace was this good idea that saved you from the past, or it's this good idea that's going to keep you for the future. Know that it's God's grace that is what you need now. You need it now for all of life and godliness, for all of relationship, for all of spiritual maturity, for all of emotional health. God's grace is what we need. In fact, and this is the crazy, beautiful reality, because God is committed to us and because it is all a mystery of God's grace that trains us for righteousness, here's what you have to understand. God is more committed to us looking like Jesus than we are. What hope for our sanctification. What hope for our godliness that the God of the universe is more committed to us loving him more than we are committed to it. That God is more committed to us looking like Jesus than we are. That he's more committed to us being emotionally and spiritually mature than we are. He's more committed to us and this game and this life of sanctification than we are. And so here's what happens. We're justified in an instant. We're sanctified over a lifetime. All the work of God's grace. But there's one more beautiful promise for us. Look at verse 13. Paul continues, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says the grace of God appeared and it justified you, it declared you righteous with God, it's sanctifying you, it's making you look more like Jesus, and one day we are waiting for the blessed hope, the glory of Jesus when he returns, and we will be glorified. When our lived righteousness will catch up to our positional righteousness. Well, right now as we're learning to look more like Jesus, the promise is one day Christ is going to return and call us home into a new heavens and a new earth with, new earth with him, and we will look like him. We will be glorified. One day, that sin you just can't seem to put to death will be put to death. One day, that frustration you just can't seem to get away from will be dealt with. One day, that pain and that suffering that it seems like will never leave you from your past will be dealt with when Christ returns. And that is our blessed hope. He says, what are we waiting on? What are we waiting on during this whole slow process of sanctification? We are waiting on the fact that Christ will return. And so here's what happens. We are justified in an instant, and we are sanctified over a lifetime, and one day we will be glorified for eternity. That's the promise. And so we learn to look more and more like Jesus now, knowing that one day he will make us like him in completion, in totality, that the work God began in you of drawing us to himself, of saving us by his grace, he continues that work now in the present, sanctifying us, shaping us into the image of Christ, and one day we will stand before the throne of God, not just holy in standing, but holy through and through. Amen? And that is our blessed hope. And so in the midst of all of this, the call for us as the people of God is to be patient and to persevere in faithfulness of the little things, looking to the grace of God and slowing down to go forward. And every Sunday when we gather, we remember the goodness of the gospel that we never move past through communion. And this is actually one of the the practices we have as a church to remind ourselves each and every Sunday, we do not move past the grace of God. 
We don't outgrow the grace of God. We don't mature past the grace of God. It is the grace of God, his grace and kindness to us that makes us more like Jesus. So we take communion. This is our practice as a church where we take a wafer, which represents Christ's body and juice, which represents his blood. And and our our ask is that if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you wouldn't take communion with us, not because we want you to feel weird or ostracized or anything like that, but because you'd be saying this is true about you when it's just not yet. This is not yet your blessed hope, but it can be. We invite you to put your faith in Christ. I'm down front every Sunday after the gathering. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and put your faith in him. But for all who are in Christ, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Every time you eat this bread, you're remembering the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We never move past the gospel, this good news of Jesus. So church, in light of that, take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Every time you eat the bread, you drink the cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until, notice what he says, until he returns. So what we get the practice of doing every time we drink this little cup and we eat this little wafer is not just looking back to what Christ has done, looking now to what he is doing, we look ahead to our blessed hope. So church, we have the privilege to remember that Christ shed his blood to wash us clean and that he will return, that we will be glorified into eternity. So church, in light of our blessed hope, take and drink. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we're going to respond like we always do. We'll have a prayer team in the back who'd love to pray with you and for you. We're going to respond in singing and worship together. Let's, Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the past 11 weeks. God, what a, what a joy to get to think about and talk about your word, to get to think about emotional health and emotional maturity. God, what a joy to get to, to think about what it would look like for us to look more like Jesus in this area of emotions. And God, I pray that the work that you've started, the work that you've continued, whatever it has looked like in our church and in our hearts, God, that you would continue to sow, that we would reap a harvest of righteousness. God, I pray that you would take this and you would, you would bring forth much fruit in our hearts. God, that six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, we would remember, our, oh yeah, that little thing about anger from the scriptures and you would help use it in this long, slow, tedious, monotonous, full of perseverance and patience, life of sanctification. Now we need you. God, would you help us as a people, as individuals, as a church, never move past the gospel. Lord, we don't mature past your grace. We don't get sanctified past your grace. We don't gain a bunch of theological knowledge to where we don't need your grace anymore. God, we want to be a people desperate for your grace for all of life. God, and so would you help the gospel for us, not just be a past reality that we say, yes, we're justified, we're we're saved, we're forgiven, not just a future reality that you're going to return, but a present reality that you are training us to live holy lives where we say no to the world and yes to you all because of your grace. We need your grace. We love you. We're desperate for you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.